0: COVID-19 can be characterised as a pandemic. Our goal is to protect the lives and livelihoods of Australians.
1: We have breaking news on a corona scare. The panic buying. Self-isolating on a statewide level. Stop it.
2: It's Tuesday the 21st of April. Welcome to Coronavirus Watch. I'm Kate Ryan, joined by Ben O'Shea. And Ben, as per usual, we're starting with the numbers and in WA they're showing good signs again.
3: Yeah, it's a bit anticlimactic after we had zero (laughs) new cases yesterday, but it's great to see just one new case in the past 24 hours. It continues really, really strong numbers for Western Australia over the last week or so. Uh, in this case, it was an interesting one. It was a healthcare worker at okay. RPH. So there's obviously concerns around whether or not uh, this healthcare worker has seen any patients, mm-hmm. um, but we've been assured today by the Health Minister, Roger Cook, that uh, uh, they were not. Uh, they were asymptomatic and then as soon as they observed symptoms, they were uh, at home and did not have any contact with patients uh, and healthcare workers are tested all the time. Um, if they experience any symptoms. So uh, the public can have a lot of reassurance yeah. that uh, they're being looked after very carefully. Um and so the one new case today brings WA's total number of confirmed cases up to 546. Uh, currently, there are just 26 people in hospital wow. and only five in the ICU. Uh, the another important number to mention today is that the number of active cases, so people who are currently uh, considered to have COVID-19, has dropped below 100 for the first time in weeks. Wow. Uh, we're now currently at just 96 people who have uh, uh, an active case of COVID-19. Only 10 active cases in regional WA which is great as well Uh, and that means that 443 people have recovered which is good news.
2: Wow that's great. Um, Nationally we've seen some good news on the front as well.
3: Yeah definitely absolutely good news that there was just 18 new cases in Australia in the last 24 hours uh, that brings the national total up to 6,642 and we've seen 71 deaths in total but that number didn't change which is that's a good thing.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, Worldwide we're approaching 2.5 million cases, which is concerning.
3: Yeah, uh, 2,482,000 confirmed cases. The reality is that probably a lot more than that yeah. that haven't been either tested or asymptomatic. Uh, and the number of deaths is also keeping on climbing uh, and it's at 170,472. Uh, the positive is that uh, 652,000 people have recovered. Uh, oh. And so that's that's nice to, to mention as well.
2: Yeah. Um, Now, going back home, and there's some relief for people who've been waiting for elective surgeries, obviously. um, Emergency service surgeries have obviously still been going during this, but hospitals have obviously had to make room for ICU beds, so all elective surgeries were cancelled but there is some good news.
3: Yeah, that's right. There were some people who who really were rushed through the system to get their elective surgeries done before uh the the real uh restrictions around this pandemic were introduced, but yet they obviously were were stopped um, to to free up hospital capacity. Yeah, so so elective surgery is going to restart after the Anzac Day holiday uh, that came out of national cabinet today and then was reiterated by uh, the federal health minister Greg Hunt and then uh, locally here in western australia by premier mark mcgowan and roger cook as well uh, and so what we're going to see is the interesting thing is every every politician that <laughs> talked about it today the first type of elective surgery they mentioned was colonoscopies which yeah. you might be thinking there's nobody out there who would really be happy that that's going to be back yeah. in action but it's important to remember that uh, colon cancer is a massive killer in australia yeah. and so it is potentially life-saving, that these procedures will be continuing. Um, The cataract surgery, uh, paediatrics will be a priority. Uh, The procedures that go forward will be based on, you know, who needs it the most, basically. And both uh, at a federal level and a state level, uh, the politicians urged people who perhaps um, were due to have uh, elective surgery not to call the hospital They're busy enough. Don't hassle them. Don't take up the important uh, call centres at hospitals with your queries about elective surgery. The local WA Health Department will be in touch with you if you had surgery booked before this pandemic, and they'll discuss what options you have in terms of getting that scheduled and getting that surgery happening.
2: I suppose it's important saying that when you think of elective surgery, it's it's not boob jobs it's not facelifts it's it's life-changing surgery and although it's not emergency some of it still is urgent and we heard from the chief medical officer Brendan Murphy as well as Mark McGowan describing just what surgeries these will be.
1: It may involve some um, knee replacements as well because you know I've had a dad who uh, or I have a dad uh, who uh, has had a knee replacement prior to that he's in a lot of pain so that is technically elective but um, for many people, it's pretty essential.
0: Some people think elective surgery sounds like it's something that's not important. It is incredibly important. Some elective surgery is life-saving. It really means all surgery that's not urgent. So some people are seriously disabled with hip and knee problems. Some people can't see because of their cataract. Some people need surgery and have been waiting for it. And this is an opportunity in a safe and controlled manner to slowly restart, cognisant of making the the process safe, cognisant of getting the facilities up and running again, cognisant of the need to preserve our PPE. This is a gentle, careful start of normalising what is so important, the general health care needs of the community.
2: And I suppose another thing that's uh, that's going to be impactful for some people is that IVF will be back on as well. The Health Minister Roger Cook was also asked about the uh, the elective surgeries and what would happen to cancel elective surgeries. And again, and he kind of said, well, it would take a lot of cases over a long period of time. To cancel elective surgeries again, so just one spike over one day wouldn't necessarily mean elective surgeries would be cancelled. But while it looks like we're on our way back in terms of the health crisis, the Premier warned there's still a long way to go in getting the economy back to normal.
1: The figures that came out early days showed that um, across Australia it's dire and the unemployment situation is dire. Uh, We are not as bad as some other states for instance look at Tasmania their tourism industry has essentially died and that's their main industry so you can imagine for a state like Tasmania it's just so bleak. Uh, Our industry to a degree has been stronger because we have uh, mining we've kept construction going Uh, we haven't sought to close some industries that other states have Um, so we have done a little bit better, but having said that, it's pretty serious.
3: Yeah, you have to feel for Tassie. They've got enough <laughs> problems without the Premier of WA sticking their boot <laughs> into them and singling them out as an economy that is really going to struggle. But it's certainly fortunate for Western Australia that we've got uh, the resource sector, which is going to help us bounce back from this terrible economic situation. Uh, but, yeah, the numbers are really terrifying. Uh, we're looking at 60% of Australia lost their jobs in one week. Wow. Uh, and, then, uh, and then what the future is going to look like for some of these people if uh, things like the hospitality industry isn't restarted
2: yeah the premier mentioned today that the the hospitality cafes and restaurants wouldn't necessarily go back as quickly as what we thought. I yeah, mean, what, yeah, was it June?
3: Yeah, well, it's it's been a run of really good news for people um, because of our great result flattening the curve. There was the the news that the schools were going to uh, reopen, which was uh, mm-hmm. really uh, a lot of parents were looking forward to that. Then there was the liquor restrictions that had, were lifted yesterday. And I think a lot of people thought that the next step would be bars and cafes and restaurants reopening. But Mark McGowan made it clear today that they're in no rush to do that and he thought that that might be one of the industries that doesn't come online as quickly as people might be hoping for, um, because the, the amount of people out socialising, coming into contact with each other, yeah. that creates problems. Uh, and he said it wasn't on the agenda uh, for reopening uh, when the um, the state crisis council uh, meets uh, and talks about what they might be doing next month.
2: So I guess there's still a lot of hospitality workers still staying either on the job seeker or the job keeper, and uh, the prime minister today said 517,000 job seeker payments were processed. So that's as many in six weeks that they would do in a year.
3: Yeah, it's, you know, $130 billion is an (laughs) eye-watering amount of money. Uh, But the government had to do something to prop Mm -hmm. up the economy and... uh, The JobKeeper payment program is interesting because it it keeps people attached to their jobs. Uh, They're not just at Centrelink getting money for sitting on their couch. They're still on the books with their places of employment. And the thinking is when things eventually do restart, those people, that workforce will be ready to go back to work.
2: Yeah, straight away being able to just jump back into work instead of having to look and yeah,
3: that's right, go through the whole process of finding a job, which is stressful enough at the best of times.
2: Yeah. Uh, now we spoke about yesterday about it yesterday that Virgin Airlines uh, is set to go into administration. But like Mark McGowan just said, if we're going to keep the economy propped up with mining, we also need to make sure that the workers can get to site. Um, This is something that he was asked about today. While he said that the WA government has no plans to add any money to bailout Virgin, he has been talking to the mining industry and airlines to try and keep FIFO workers going to site.
3: Yeah, he didn't he didn't definitely didn't want to commit any WA money <laughs> to bailing out Virgin Australia. And I don't blame the Premier for that. Uh, but it's certainly something that they will have to look at. If we're talking about the resource sector being the driving force of of the WA economy and helping us bounce back, uh, we need to get these FIFO workers on site. And how that happens remains to be seen. But uh, you can have you can have absolutely no doubt that the government is having a lot of conversations around keeping those flights running.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, we just spoke about the cafes and restaurants not being reopened most likely until June. So that leaves some questions with the leaseholders, the tenants and uh, the landlords. But the moratorium on residential and commercial evictions has officially become law.
3: Yeah, and I think it couldn't come quick enough for a lot of people out there, especially small business owners and uh, residential tenants who might have been worried about what the future holds for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, paying paying commercial rents, paying residential rents is a lot Uh, more difficult if you don't have a job or if you don't have customers Uh, and so this legislation was designed to protect people who might be in financial distress now the last thing the government wants is people kicked out of their homes in the middle of a pandemic Uh, they want people to stay in their homes they want businesses to stay in the commercial properties that they're in and so this legislation prevents people from increasing rent Uh, it gives protection for residential tenants against eviction you can still be evicted if you do the wrong thing but you can't be evicted for not paying your rent because you don't have a job Um, but it also, uh, in some way, protects landlords because it uh, gives the facility for that unpaid rent to eventually be paid back. Uh, and there, residential renters can be evicted if they don't agree to a rent payment program. So th- there is some protections for landlords. Um, it, again, this is one of those things that I'm sure will be tweaked as it uh, is implemented. Um, and individual cases uh, will vary quite a yeah. bit, I think.
2: And I think importantly as well, there are a lot of people who were concerned about these rent arrears. Uh, There will be no interest. That applied to that. So once we get to the end of this, um, you won't have an extra thousand, couple of thousand dollars to pay on top of it. It's just what your rent would have been.
3: Yeah. The only unfortunate <laughs> thing about that is for for the uh, mum and dads who might have a rental property yeah. and they're not getting the rent and, and they can't charge interest on their tenants, which is I think is fair enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the banks. the banks are definitely <laughs> charging them interest on their rental properties. So someone gets stung eventually. Uh, and so I guess it's just passing the, the buck around to yeah. see who ends up copying it. Uh, and in this case, I think uh, we've protected the people who are most vulnerable, which I think is all you can ask from any government legislation.
2: Moving nationally, and we, while we have been talking about what has happened in National Cabinet today, one of the, uh, the big things to come out of it was aged care. And it's, it's not for the reason that you might think. Uh, the government is urging aged care facilities not to ban people.
3: Yeah, we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks on Coronavirus Watch the importance of really locking down uh, aged care facilities because we've seen around the world and in Australia uh, the coronavirus pandemic is really having a high toll on the elderly people. It's it's killed more in that cohort than any other section of the community. So the logic dictated that you... Close off the healthcare facilities uh, and keep those people safe. But now, as we've flattened the curve and we're getting such great numbers in terms of the infection rate, uh, it does start to seem a little uh, unfair and inhumane to keep these uh, elderly people locked away and not being able to see family members, which is a great source of distress for those people. And uh, I think uh, Scott Morrison said today that he didn't want, he didn't like the idea of, of elderly people being locked up, and they should yeah. be able to have visitors. But uh, on the proviso that it's done under certain conditions. And obviously, people who are unwell, who have any kind of symptoms that could be related to coronavirus, uh, you can't visit an aged care facility. It would be catastrophic if you did. Um, and they're also going to monitor uh, th- community transmission and things like that. So, this is while they might be relaxing some of the guidelines around aged care facilities, I think they're also keeping the option to then tighten them up if. Uh, we see a reversal in uh, the infection rate and we see a spike in new cases. Yeah, it
2: was uh, like what the Premier said today. We don't want to see these, you know, imagine your 90-year-old mother who is being locked away and, might not ever see her, her children or her family again it's just it's just really unfair um, now moving to uh, how the how Australia has been um, combating the health crisis suppression has been what Australia has been trying to do um, and today to date four hundred and thirty four thousand tests have been completed in Australia so far um, so Australia is really at the global forefront of, of testing really Um And less than 1% growth each day for nine days really means that we're really getting on top of this curve.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And the and that infection rate is actually about half a percent over the last couple of days. And if that can be maintained, then uh, everybody can have a lot of confidence that we're really flattening the curve in a meaningful way. Uh, and at the start of this uh, COVID-19 situation, uh, it was made clear that the tough restrictions that a lot of people don't like were all about buying the health system time. Mm-hmm. Uh, time to increase capacity, increase ICU beds, PPE supplies, all that kind of stuff. And what we've seen is the result so far in the past few weeks has enabled that to happen. Uh, we've now got uh, some 60 million uh, PPE masks, uh, 22 million of which have been distributed. Um, there's going to be uh, 100 million masks made available over the next uh, six weeks. Ventilators, which we know around the world, are in such uh, extreme demand. Uh, we've now uh, achieved a, a goal of 7,500 ventilators across the country. And so that means when uh, the, the virus eventually does start to uh, increase the rate of infections, which everybody kind of knows is inevitable, yeah. uh, we're going to have those abilities, that capacity, to be able to treat people and prevent them from dying.
2: I mean, that's all you can really ask for, really, to be totally prepared. But speaking of um, asking for things, today Scott Morrison really asked us to stop being racist.
0: Stop it. That's my message. It's, uh, it's, and I think that's the message of every Australian. Um, now is a time to support each other. And I remind everyone that it was Chinese Australians in particular that provided one of the greatest defenses we had in those early weeks. They were the ones who first went into self-isolation. They were the ones who were returning from family visits up into China and they were coming home. And it was through their care, it was through their commitment, their patience, that actually Australia was protected in that first wave. I mean, within a week of our first case, we'd shut off um, travel from those from China except for Australians returning home. And, uh, and so absolutely, I deplore that sort of behaviour against any Australian, regardless of their, their ethnicity, of their religion or whatever it happens to be. And I think that's the view of all Australians. So, you know, we've got to call that sort of thing out. It's not on.
2: And obviously this was... Uh, in response to a question about um, reports of people spitting on um, Asian Australians, bus drivers being spat on and told to go home. So really this is, it's quite terrible behaviour to hear that this is happening in Australia.
3: And it's horrible that the Prime Minister of Australia has to uh, answer questions like that and basically tell us off for our bad behaviour. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I think uh, he certainly uh, didn't pull any punches with his uh, directions there and hopefully people pay heed to that because it's a horrible behaviour and we can certainly do without it. Yeah,
2: really not tolerated. Now, uh, moving overseas, uh, we've spoken before how different countries are dealing with this crisis. It's kind of like a real-time trial and error approach. Australia is looking closely, though, at two countries who've had two very different approaches, um, that's Singapore and Hong Kong.
3: Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to contrast this with what we do in Australia because we're kind of in the situation where we've handled the first wave of infections and we've done an amazing job at it, at flattening that curve. Uh, But now where we go next? Uh, And so in the case of Hong Kong and Singapore, uh, when Hong Kong experienced its first wave of infections, they took a little time to get... Organised, but then they closed down schools, locked uh, locked people away, and uh, introduced uh, apps that tracked people, uh, and and they got a great response from the people themselves. uh, They closed the borders to China. Uh, whereas Singapore initially, uh, they were lauded around the world as an example of how you can uh, fight the virus but also keep a functioning economy. But now the second wave of infections has hit Singapore, and they've got some they've got some specific geographical uh, issues that we don't have in Australia. They have uh, a lot of uh, itinerant workers coming into the country, which is only a tiny country, uh, and they're living in very cramped conditions. And what that's resulted in is. F- They've went from having basically the virus under control to now this huge spike in new cases where they're looking at uh, 1,400 new cases a day. It's like a terrible, terrible situation in Singapore, whereas Hong Kong, who didn't really relax their restrictions at all, uh, are now experiencing uh, single-digit increases per day and might have even had their uh, first day with zero new cases for nearly two months. And so... What we take away from that, what we learn from those two experiences, I think, yep. uh, could be very vital in how we go forward from here because everybody wants to rest- to relax the restrictions but we've seen in the case of Singapore how deadly a second wave of infections could be if it's not managed carefully.
2: And I suppose Australia is in, we've always said Australia is in a really unique position because we can see what's going to happen to us in a couple of weeks if we don't do something, or if we if we try a different approach, one country that really isn't doing that great now, um, Turkey has officially surpassed China in its numbers of confirmed coronavirus cases, uh, with more than ninety thousand by Monday, and deaths reaching over two thousand. Uh, but Really, we don't really know what this death toll might be. It might be a lot higher than that. The government maintains that it did act swiftly, stopping flights and border crossings. But this uh, this came from the New York Times who did their own investigation into it. And they said in mid-March, when their first case of infection was confirmed, that's when they shut the schools and the restaurants. But during their, their investigation, they found that the first case may have been a lot earlier than that and the virus could have just spread, and there's so many unconfirmed cases. So it is quite concerning that we don't actually know how many are in Turkey.
3: Yeah, and this is one of the big problems with the spread of this pandemic around the world. There are some governments, like Australia, which are very transparent, uh, and we talk about everything that we're doing and all of the cases that we have. Uh, and then there are other countries, like Turkey, who are probably less honest about what they're actually experiencing there. And it. it makes it very difficult for organisations like the World Health Organisation to actually track the spread of the virus and also it makes it very difficult to actually learn how to uh, appropriately fight it if you can't trust the information that you're getting from various international governments uh, and Turkey. Yeah, we we pointed this out a couple um, a couple of weeks ago on Coronavirus Watch that they were uh, at the forefront of the battle against the virus and were losing that battle. Mm-hmm. And this this news that they've just surpassed China is terrible. Yeah. I mean, you have to feel for the for the Turkish people.
2: Yeah, you really do. Uh, moving over to the UK now, and uh, David Attenborough is going to teach kids geography.
3: How good is that? <laughs> that's amazing. I've got to find out where to tune in. Yeah, yeah so the BBC has just launched uh, a bite-sized daily uh, program that is offering fourteen weeks of uh, curriculum-based learning for kids across the United Kingdom, and you can't get a much better <laughs> teacher than Sir David Attenborough. Uh, yeah. He's not teaching—he's not teaching biology, which I think he'd probably be pretty good at. Yeah. He's teaching geography. He's been everywhere though, so that probably makes sense. Uh, he's going to talk about uh, how we map the world and help us understand why animals look. The way they do, Uh, but he's not the only uh, celebrity scientist who's helping out. Uh, Professor Brian Cox, who's a bit of a legend, will be teaching uh, some key science topics, including about the solar system and gravity, Uh, while uh, while there's even a Manchester City footballer, uh, Sergio Aguero, who will uh, get the kids counting in Spanish.
2: (laughs) That's great. I kind of want to be a kid again just to. We're going to do the same thing
3: here in Australia.
2: <laughs> yeah. Who we, would we get? Though?
3: Nick Nat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nick Nat could teach us something. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and there must be a few celebrities we could dig up. Probably no one from Mar- uh, Married First Sight. I don't know if they're, they're qualified to, <laughs> if to instruct anybody they can about anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, and closer to home. Uh, I've had questions uh, over the past couple yeah. of weeks about WA's travel restrictions and how you, what you, what qualifies uh, appropriate Uh, permission to to cross the intrastate borders and one that has come up a few times is whether or not you're allowed to cross an intrastate border into another region if you need to go to a vet with your pet and the Joondla police uh, have answered this question on Twitter (laughs) overnight uh, when they've stopped someone at a roadblock and their pet in the back of the car was a little bit unusual it wasn't a cat or a dog (laughs) it was actually an alpaca.
2: I think this alpaca wished that vet trips weren't considered essential because it seems like he was off to the vet for the snip.
3: Yeah, it's a bit like the people who now can get colonoscopies. Yeah. Uh, I don't think anybody looks forward to it but unfortunately it's an essential service even if you're an alpaca. Yeah.
2: Now Ben this is a video which I absolutely love and I haven't shown it to you yet so uh, you're... I my live reaction, <laughs> yes. all right I'm excited. <laughs> Um, So a lady called Liz, she's a a music teacher in the US. Um, She goes by Makeshift Macaroni on TikTok and she's created a song which has now gone viral with more than 9.5 million views, thousands of shares and I guess the general sentiment that has resonated among teachers but don't let me describe it, let's just hear it from her. So as some of you guys might know, I'm a music teacher, and I found that one of the best ways that I can process the whole transition to online learning and teaching is to write a song. So I wrote a song. I'd like to share
1: that with you guys now. Here we go.
2: I think um, a lot of teachers have just said, "Yep." Yeah,
3: I can see why they would. <laughs> I can see why they would relate to that. What a good song! I wish I, I, I wish I had her ukulele playing ability. I'm pretty much sure that I've got her singing ability. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you for joining us today. We will speak to you tomorrow for Coronavirus Watch. Join us then. Bye for now.